How do police get rid of flies? They call the SWAT team. <laughs> Hello, Sustainer Nation, and welcome to Starting Sustainability Episode 104, hosted by yours truly, Kaylin Chenoweth. So last week, I recorded early on Halloween morning, and I wanted to catch you up with how the rest of our Halloween went. All day long, it was beautiful, sunny, nice weather in the 60s, and then Halloween trick-or-treating hours were from 6 p.m. to 8.30 p.m. on Sunday evening. And we did have a wonderful Halloween for about the first hour of trick-or-treating. And then the sun went down and the wind kicked up and the temperature dropped into the 40s. <laughs> so our costumes were quickly covered with coats, hats, and gloves. And we worked our way back through the neighborhood back to our house. In case you missed it, our family dressed up as a firefighting family. So <laughs> my husband and the oldest, they dressed up as firefighters. My youngest, he was a little Dalmatian. And then I, of course, was the fire or the hot mama. <laughs> so I had flames all over my shirt and my outfit. It was cute and adorable. And I don't know how many more years I'm going to be able to pull off this family fun Halloween theme <laughs> until each kid wants to do their own thing. Since the whole family went trick-or-treating, I did set out a bowl for the trick-or-treaters and everything inside the bowl was non-food items because I support the Teal Pumpkin Project, which is a food allergy inclusive project where everything is non-food items. So all year long, I collected a whole bunch of trinkets and knickknacks like bracelets, keychains, stickers, buttons, cereal box toys, goodies from birthday parties that my kids played with for about 10 minutes and then didn't care about anymore. So instead of throwing all of that stuff away throughout the year, I threw it all inside the Halloween bowl that I had hidden away in our guest bedroom. And that's what I set out. And when we were done trick-or-treating, we came back to the house and discovered that everything had been taken out of the bowl except for the stickers. Turns out, apparently, I'm not the only parent who has banned stickers from their house. <laughs> so what do I do with these stickers now? I'm going to put them back in the bowl for next year. Since the weather is now dropping very low at night, like almost down to the freezing point, it's in the 30s at night. So I had to harvest my loofahs. What I have learned online from like the two YouTube videos that I watched is that you leave the loofahs on the vine as long as possible. And then right before the first freeze, you harvest them and then you let them dry out for a couple of weeks. So I harvested all of our loofahs and 14 humongous loofahs, like two to three feet long. These suckers are massive. Were there that survived because I started the year with four loofah plants and one by one, my husband took them out <laughs> and that left me with one plant that he still hit with the weed whacker and left me with half of a plant and it miraculously somehow survived. And even though I was upset, it ended up being a blessing in disguise because that one loofah plant took over five panels of our fence. It was gigantic and it produced, like I said, 14 loofahs. And after I harvested them all, I even discovered one little baby loofah. And so I cooked and ate that one. Yes, you can eat loofahs if, if you haven't been following along. 
I have been growing loofahs all year long at this point. And loofahs are related to the squash family. You can eat the loofahs as long as they are baby and little because that's when they are tender. But once they start getting bigger, that's when the fibrous material forms on the inside and they're no longer edible at that point. So tonight we actually cooked up the little baby loofah. I cut it up just like you would a yellow squash or a zucchini squash. I cut it up, tried it raw, It was kind of bland. My husband said it reminded him of a cucumber. I didn't really get the cucumber vibe. It was just bland. There wasn't a whole lot of flavor to it. And we threw it on a baking sheet with carrots, bell peppers, and little little tomatoes, the grape tomatoes. And we roasted them all in the oven and put some seasoning on them. And I thought they turned out pretty good. But I'm an adventurous eater. Nobody else in my family really enjoyed them. (laughs) They did all try it, so I commend them for that. (laughs) I'm not saying that you need to run out and eat loofah because it's the best thing ever. It's just like squash. It's going to taste like whatever seasoning you put on it. I also wanted to share a story of something that happened to me this past week. It was rather out of the blue. At work, there's a mailroom. So everybody who is sending or receiving packages can go to the mailroom and mail them off or pick up their packages. And I went to the mailroom because I had to mail some packages. And there was an area there with a little handwritten note that said, free, please take. That area had never been there before. So of course I had to go check it out. And you'll never guess what was in that area. A brand new lunchbox, brand new reusable hot cold cup, and a bamboo cutlery kit. Score! Do I need these items? No, not really, because I already have them. But I couldn't stop staring at them. They were brand new and shiny and so pretty and 100% sustainable. And I was so excited about it. And then the mailroom attendant came to me and he goes, please, please take those. I was like, really? Like, I can leave them for somebody else. He's like, they've been there for days. Nobody wants them. Oh, well, then that's just destiny. I better take these, huh? (laughs) So I did. I took them. But... My intention is to gift them to somebody for Christmas or a birthday gift or at whatever point I'm going to need a gift. These are going to be perfect. So I will add them to my tub of gifts. That is where I store all of the things that I have duplicates of or items that I was given but really aren't my taste or didn't like. Yes, it's a whole tub that I have in our guest room. (laughs) That's a whole bunch of random things. (laughs) Mostly things that I am re-gifting. But hey, when it's suddenly gift time, because I'm really busy and I never remember until the day of that I need a gift, I just go rummaging through that tub as opposed to running out to the store for a last minute gift and bada bing, bada boom, I got a gift ready to go. Much like I have the Halloween bowl that I put all the kid things that I don't want and I use that for the trick-or-treaters the following year, I have a gigantic tub for all of the adult stuff. And that's what I use whenever I need a gift. You now know my secret feel free to copy it because it's a great way to get rid of stuff that you don't want and you don't have to send it to the landfill. And it saves you a bunch of money too when it's time to go get a gift. And the last thing is that I realized I never gave an update on the forging books. I did an episode maybe three, four episodes ago where I had just gotten the forging books that day. They had been sitting on my porch at home while I was at work on lunch (laughs) recording the episode. So I couldn't tell you about them. But yes, I came home opened up my package, and the books are amazing. They are so cool. I'm learning a lot, and I'm also sad (laughs) because the books are so great and wonderful, and the weather for the last three, four weekends has been rainy, cold, and crummy. 
and super muddy. Not exactly ideal to bring two very little children out into the woods with me to go foraging. So I haven't actually been able to go foraging, which is what I really want to do. So now I have all of the knowledge. I've got the class. I've got the books. I just need to physically get out into the woods or find a field or meadow or something somewhere, (laughs) whatever, and just do it. Just go foraging. And way back, like over a month ago for my birthday, I received a homesteading book called The Self-Sufficient Backyard. And I'm about halfway through it right now. I'm learning a lot of really cool stuff. And at the same time, kind of sad that I don't have a gigantic yard to do all this homesteading in. But I'm getting all the knowledge. So one day, when we have a beautiful home and some property, we're going to knock it out of the park with being self-sufficient and having the coolest homestead ever. I'm aware that for the last couple of months, I've really been on a big kick for foraging and gardening and learning everything about homesteading and just being self-sufficient in general. And that's why when I heard the story that I'm about to share with you today, I thought, wow, this is why we need all of these skills. It's literally survival skills. As we become more sustainably focused, we are learning not only to sustain ourselves and sustain the world, but the skills we pick up by gardening, reusing and repurposing old items, crafting, preserving food, hunting or foraging, they all come together in this story. And that's why when I heard this story, I thought I just absolutely, without a doubt, have to share this with Sustainer Nation. This is way too cool to not share. In this episode, I'm gonna do something completely different. Instead of giving a lecture, I'm going to tell the real-life story of Lord of the Flies. If you're unlucky enough to have been forced to read this horrific, depressing book in high school, or have even seen the movie, who has Drew Carey as one of the main characters, he plays Piggy, this is back when he was like 8 or 10 years old, you'll be just as stoked as I was to find out the real-life version has a much happier ending. It is actually a story about survival and how humans can be inherently good. It is a truly feel-good story. Like I said earlier, this story is truly about survival. And I hope no one is ever left stranded on an island or in a survival situation. But be comforted by the fact, as you gain more and more sustainability-focused related skills, you are also acquiring a skill set that will save your life. The majority of the story I'm about to tell you came straight out of the book, Humankind, A Hopeful History by Rutger Bregman. And he wrote it so well, I really didn't change very much of it. So (laughs) this is pretty much verbatim. All credit to him. Let's begin. First, let me tell you about a man named Peter Warner. He was born the youngest son of Arthur Warner, once one of the richest and most powerful men in Australia. Back in the 1930s, Arthur ruled over a vast empire called Electronic Industries, which dominated the country's radio market at the time. Peter had been groomed to follow in his father's footsteps. Instead, at age 17, he ran away. He went to the sea in search of adventure. Peter spent the next few years sailing the seven seas, from Hong Kong to Stockholm, from Shanghai to St. Petersburg. When he finally returned five years later, the prodigal son proudly presented his father his Swedish captain's certificate. Unimpressed, Warner Sr. demanded his son learn a useful profession. All right then, what's the easiest? Peter asked. Accountancy, Arthur lied. (laughs) It took another five years of night school for Peter to earn his degree. 
He went to work for his father's company, yet the sea still beckoned, and whenever he could get away, Peter went to Tasmania, where he kept his own fishing fleet. It was the fishing on the side that brought him to Tonga in the winter of 1966. He had arranged an audience with the king to ask permission to trap lobster in the Tongan waters. Unfortunately, his majesty, and I apologize for this because I'm really not sure how to pronounce it, Tafa Ahau Tupo, the fourth, he refused. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I really did butcher that. I wasn't trying to. <laughs> Disappointed, Peter headed back to Tasmania, but on the way, he took a little detour outside the royal waters to cast his nets. And that's when he saw it, a minuscule island in the Azure Sea, the island of Ata. Peter knew that no ships had anchored there in ages. The island had been inhabited once up until one dark day in 1863, when a slave ship appeared on the horizon and sailed off with the natives. Since then, Ata had been deserted, cursed, and forgotten. But Peter noticed something odd. Peering through his binoculars, he saw burned patches on the green cliffs. In the tropics, it's unusual for fires to start spontaneously, so he decided to investigate. As his boat approached the western tip of the island, Peter heard a shout from the crow's nest. Someone's calling, yelled one of his men. Nonsense, Peter shouted back. It's just squawking seabirds. But then, through his binoculars, he saw a boy, naked, hair down to his shoulders. This wild creature leaped from the cliffside and plunged into the water. Suddenly, more boys followed, screaming at the top of their lungs. Peter ordered his crew to load their guns, mindful of the Polynesian custom of dumping dangerous criminals on remote islands. It didn't take long for the first boy to reach the boat. My name is Fateh, he cried in perfect English. There are six of us, and we reckon we've been here 15 months. Peter was more than a little skeptical. The boys, once aboard, claimed they were students at a boarding school in, I'm sorry again, Nuku Alafa, the Tongan capital. Sick of the school meals, they had decided to take a fishing boat out one day, only to get caught in a storm. Likely story, Peter thought. Using his two-way radio, he called into Nuku Alafa. I've got six kids here, he told the operator. If I give you their names, can you telephone the school to find out if their pupil's there? Stand by, came the response. Twenty minutes ticked by. Finally, a very tearful operator came on the radio and said, You found them! These boys have been given up for dead! Funerals have been held! If it is them, it is a miracle! Now, let's dive into the events of the real Lord of the Flies. In June 1965, six boys were all pupils at St. Andrews, a strict Anglican boarding school in Nuku'alafa. The oldest was 16 and the youngest was 13, and they all had one main thing in common. They were bored witless. The teenagers longed for adventure instead of assignments, and for life at sea instead of school. So they came up with a plan to escape, off to Fiji, some 500 miles away, or even all the way to New Zealand. Other kids at the school knew about it, but they all thought it was a joke. There was only one obstacle. None of them owned a boat, so they decided to quote, borrow one from a Mr. Tanelia Uhila, a fisherman that they all disliked. The boys took little time to prepare for the voyage. Two sacks of bananas, a few coconuts, and a small gas burner were all the supplies that they had packed. It didn't occur to any of them to bring a map, let alone a compass. <laughs> mm, minor detail. 
and none of them was an experienced sailor. Only the youngest, Tavita, knew how to steer a boat, which according to him was why they wanted him to come along. The journey began without a hitch. No one noticed the craft leaving the harbor that evening. Skies were fair, only a mild breeze ruffled in the calm sea. But that night, the boys made a grave error. They fell asleep. A few hours later, they awoke to water crashing down over their heads. It was dark. All they could see were foaming waves cresting around them. They hoisted the sail, and the wind promptly tore it to shreds. Next to break was the rudder. The boys drifted for eight days, without food and without water. The boys tried catching fish, and they managed to collect some rainwater in a hollowed-out coconut shells, and they shared it equally between them, each taking a sip in the morning and another in the evening. One of the boys, Sion, tried boiling seawater on the gas burner, but it tipped over and burnt a large part of his leg. Then on the eighth day, they spied a miracle on the horizon. Land. A small island, to be precise. Not a tropical paradise with waving palm trees and sandy beaches, but a hulking mass of rock jutting up more than a thousand feet out of the ocean. These boys didn't just survive until Captain Warner came to the rescue. They thrived. By the time Captain Warner arrived, the boys had set up a small commune with a food garden, hollowed out tree trunks to store rainwater. They created a gymnasium with some curious weights, a badminton court, chicken pens, and a permanent fire, all from handiwork, an old knife blade, and much determination. It was Fateh who, after countless failed attempts, managed to produce a spark using two sticks. While the boys in the make-believe Lord of the Flies ended up fighting over the fire and letting it go out, those in the real-life Lord of the Flies tended their flame so it never went out for more than a year. The kids agreed to work in teams of two, drawing up a strict roster for garden, kitchen, and guard duty. Sometimes they quarreled, but whenever that happened, they solved it by imposing a timeout. The squabblers would go to opposite ends of the island to cool their tempers, and after a few hours or so, the other boys would go get them and bring them back together and have them apologize. That is how they stayed friends. Their days began and ended with song and prayer. Kolo fashioned a makeshift guitar from a piece of driftwood, half a coconut shell, and six steel wires salvaged from their wrecked boat and played it to help lift their spirits. And their spirits needed lifting. All summer long, it hardly rained, driving the boys frantic with thirst. They tried constructing a raft in order to leave the island, but it fell apart in the crashing surf. Then there was the storm that swept across the island and dropped a tree on their hut. Worst of all, Fateh slipped one day, fell off a cliff, and broke his leg. The other boys picked their way down after him and then helped him back up to the top. They set his leg using sticks and leaves. They even joked with him. Don't worry, we'll do your work while you lie there, like King Tofahat Pau himself. <laughs> you know, boys will be boys. They can't help but give each other a hard time. The boys were finally rescued on Sunday, September 11th, 1966. Physically, they were in peak condition. The local physician later expressed astonishment at their muscled physiques and Fateh's perfectly healed leg. But that wasn't the end of the boys' little adventure, because when they arrived back in Nuku'alafa, they found the police waiting to meet them. You might expect the officers to have been thrilled at the return of the town's six lost sons. But no, they boarded Peter's boat and arrested the boys and threw them in jail. Mr. Tanilia Uhala, whose sailing boat the boys had borrowed 15 months earlier, was still pretty grumpy about that and he decided to press charges. Fortunately for the boys, Peter came up with a plan. It occurred to him 
that the story of their shipwreck was perfect Hollywood material. Six kids marooned on an island. It was a tale people would be talking about for years. And being his father's corporate accountant, Peter managed the company's movie rights and new people in television. The captain knew exactly what to do. First, from Tonga, he called up the manager of Channel 7 in Sydney and said, You can have the Australian rights. Give me the world rights. Then we'll spring these kids out of prison and take them back to the island. Next, Peter went around to see Mr. Uhila and paid him 150 pounds for his old boat, getting the boys released on the condition they would cooperate with the movie. A few days later, a team from Channel 7 arrived in the ancient DC-3, I guess that's a plane, that flew a once-weekly service to Tonga. By the time they arrived on the island, Ata, with the six boys in tow, the crew from Channel 7 was green around the gills. Worse, they didn't know how to swim. The captain rowed the trembling TV crew out to the breakers and tossed them out. The TV crew kept sinking down and the Tongans had to keep diving them down and picking them up. Next, the group had to scale the cliff, which took the rest of the day. When they finally arrived to the top, the TV crew collapsed, exhausted. Not surprising, the documentary about Ata was no success. Not only were the shots lousy, but most of the film was missing, leaving a grand total of only 20 minutes. The mood when the boys returned to their families in Tonga was jubilant. Almost the entire island of Ha'afiva, which is their home island, population 900, had turned out to welcome them home. Let me clarify this for you, because I was very confused the first time I read this. The boys were rescued, and then they went back to the island where their school was, where they stole the boat. That's why they went to jail. And then in order to get out of the jail, they had to go return to the island of Atal where they were stranded to do the movie. Then they could go to their home island where they were born and raised, where their families were. So it was quite an ordeal for them to get back home to their families. So yeah, when they returned home, their families, their whole community thought they were dead. So there was a gigantic celebration. And Peter was proclaimed a national hero. Soon he received a message from King Tafa Ahatpo IV himself. Thank you for rescuing six of my subjects. Now, is there anything I can do for you? The captain didn't have to think long. Yes, I would like to trap lobster in these waters and start a business here. Remember, he went to this king who said no, and then he found the boys. So now the king's like, okay, yeah, I guess I can do that for you. <laughs> so yes, this time the king consented. Peter returned to Sydney, resigned from his father's company, and commissioned a new ship. Then he had the six boys brought over and granted them the thing that had started it all, an opportunity to see the world beyond Tonga. He hired all six boys, Sion, Fete, Kolo, Tavita, Luke and Mano as the crew of his new fishing boat. And what did they name the boat? The Ata, after the island they are all trapped on. To this day, Peter and Mano remain close friends. Isn't that the best story ever? I just had to share it with you all. So why do we require the millions of teenagers to read the fictional Lord of the Flies? In today's world full of bullying, hate, and ugly politics, they should be taught about the inherent good within humankind and teach the real-life survival story of the Tongan boys instead. It's time for the weekly challenge. Let me draw our card. It says, Think twice each time you go to throw something away. Could you repurpose it in any way? Okay, now if these boys can take leftover steel metal 
coconut shell and some driftwood and create a guitar out of it to keep their spirits high and sing songs for 15 months, we can certainly come up with something for the items that we're about to throw away. We've got some creative juices in us. And if we don't, we've got Pinterest. <laughs> we have friends and family and neighbors. We have resources. We have the internet. We can figure out something to do with these leftover items. That is your challenge of the week. Try to save an item that would have been thrown away and repurpose it into something else. And if you are able to do that, fantastic. Share it with us. Go to the Facebook group, Starting Sustainability, and tell us about it. Say, here's what I had and here's what I made. Here's what I repurposed to. Here's what I created. Share it with us. You don't have to be the best seamstress or the craftiest person in the world just by taking anything and giving it new life. We're all so happy and excited and cheer one another on. Next week on the show, learn about our Etsy shop just in time for the holidays. Amanda Canfield, our merchandise maker, will join the show and tell us all of her secret tips and tricks on how she makes these beautiful items from all of the leftover material that would have gone to the landfill. And that's what we did. We repurposed it into something magnificent. So come and check it out. Have a wonderful rest of your week. Continue to stay sustainable. And I will talk to you all later. Bye. Welcome to the Realistic Sustainability Podcast, a guide to greening your life. Each week, we will explore sustainability concepts and what we can do to reduce our family's carbon footprint while growing our positive footprint. This show supports step-by-step -step progress without those extreme jump-all-in measures. So join us on Anchor or your favorite podcast platform and subscribe today.